facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program on this great day, this solemnity. It's a Class A feast day. It's the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That's right, it's December the 8th, 2023. So glad that you're talking to me on the program. So glad that you're here. Got so much to share. Can't wait to get into it. But first, let me give out the phone number. 888-914-9149. It's a toll-free line to call to talk to me for free. 888-914-9149. You can also email the program. Kale at relevantradio.com, C A L E at relevantradio.com. And you can find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C A L E Clark with an E, which is, of course, a fire with all kinds of rumors and news about Shohei Otani. Is he going to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays? Did he just arrive on a private jet? Allegedly, there was a press conference for this time. Right now, uh, at the dome, is this going to happen? I don't know. Well, we'll get into that later. But we've got we've got other important fish to fry. Don't forget the week that was is coming up. And speaking of fish to fry, you don't really have to fry fish today. You don't. You, today is a solemnity. You can have a steak, which is exactly what I did just before this show. I wanted to celebrate in grand style, of course, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. Great Marian feast day. And if you haven't been to Mass yet, try to get to a Mass because in the United States, it is, of course, a holy day of obligation. So, yes, we have the meats. You know, Patrick Alog just messaged me. He's uh, working the phones for us. Meat, yes, meat. Bring me meat and bring me wine. No, it's not really the words to uh, good King Wenceslas. Bring me flesh and that's what it is. Bring me flesh and bring me wine. Well, you can eat all that stuff today because it is a solemnity. You can call in, by the way, 888-914-9149. This is, this is a, a Marian doctrine of the church that is so easily misunderstood. And I want to ask the question, can you defend the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady by using the sacred scriptures? Especially for our non-Catholic Christian friends, they want to know, where is this in the Bible? And you can. You can. And By the way, if you can even just correctly explain what the Immaculate Conception of Mary is to somebody else, you're well ahead of a lot of Catholics. It's a tricky one for people to explain because the Immaculate Conception of Mary is very often confused with the virginal conception of Jesus, which of course takes place on the Annunciation. We celebrate that on March the 25th, nine months before Christmas, naturally. And here's a public service announcement for my fellow sports fans, especially football fans. This feast has nothing to do with legendary Pittsburgh Steeler Franco Harris's immaculate reception. And of course, uh, Steelers fans are definitely um, in the dumps today after losing to the Patriots last night on Thursday Night Football. Surprisingly a good game to watch. Uh, was, but uh, hopefully today's feast day will cheer you up, Steelers fans. Well, here's the actual definition of the immaculate conception of Mary straight from the source himself, who, who released the dogma. He released the, the hound, if you will. He released the dogma. Blessed Pope Pius IX, also known as Pio Nono. And this was from an apostolic constitution solemnly defining the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was released on December the 8th, 1854. Ineffabilius Deus, which essentially means the Immaculate God. In all these papal documents, the, the first 
the title of the document is usually its first words in Latin. Is the official copy is always in Latin. So here's what he said. Here's what he wrote. Quote, We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. So that's uh, the, uh, the quote from uh, this uh, Apostolic Constitution released on December the 8th on this day in 1854. So one of the things that I, I really strive to do, uh, both on this program and also on the Faith Explained show on Relevant Radio, is I really strive to show the biblical basis of our Catholic faith. And so it's no different here. We, we can, of course, observe the biblical basis of this doctrine. And where can you find the Immaculate Conception of Mary in Scripture? Well, I'm going to tell you. You can find it in Luke's Gospel. And, of course, this is the account of the Annunciation. Now, this is where the Archangel Gabriel greets Mary. And it's the only time, by the way, in all of Scripture. Now, there, there are angelic appearances that are recorded in Scripture, Old and New Testament, but this is the only one when an angel greets someone by their title, not by their name. Because what does Gabriel say to Mary? He says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 28. And it, it just really rankles me that there are some English translations of the Bible, and maybe you've come across some of them, that translate uh, this verse as, Hail, O highly favored daughter, or something like that. But that's not what it says in Greek. That is not what it says in Greek. And, and there's a real clue here in terms of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. But we'll get into that in just a second. We know, of course, that this is also the first line of the Hail Mary. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. We, of course, just add her name into that line, but this is biblical. And the second line of the Hail Mary is also straight out of the Bible from Luke chapter 1, verse 42, later on, the visitation. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Of course, this, these are the words of Elizabeth uh, to Mary. So, so much for the ridiculous argument that the Hail Mary is an unbiblical prayer. It's not the case at all. All right, so let's, let's get back to Hail Full of Grace here just for a second. So again, Gabriel's greeting Mary by her title, not by her name. And in the original Greek of Luke's gospel, and by the way, Luke is, he is phenomenal. In, in the original Greek language, of course, Luke wrote about a quarter of the New Testament because he wrote the gospel of Luke in part two of his two-volume set is the Acts of the Apostles. He was, of course, the traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. And his Greek is so good. It's approaching classical Greek. Uh, really, really amazing. So his choice of words, it's no mistake. He uses this term, full of grace. And what is this term in the original Greek text? It is this, kikaratomene. Kikaratomene. Uh, it's, you don't need to remember that. But what it actually means is quite literally, one who has been made full of God's grace. So again, these biblical translations that render this term as highly favored one or something to that effect, they don't cut it. They don't cut the mustard. Kikaratomene in Greek. Now, I had to study some Greek when I was doing my master's degree 
And language study was really difficult for me. But I do know this. I do know this. This term, kikeratomene, is a past perfect term in the original Greek. What does that mean? When you're dealing with the past perfect, it essentially means that at some point in the past, with this word, kikeratomene, it literally means one who has been made full of God's grace. At some point in the past, Mary was made perfectly full of God's grace and that condition extends as far out into the future as the eye can see, even farther into eternity. And that's exactly what the Immaculate Conception is all about. From the first moment of her existence, Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin. And on our other program that I host called The Faith Explained, we've been looking at St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and he, he talks a lot about original sin. He talks a lot about sin infecting the creation. G.K. Chesterton said that original sin is the only Catholic doctrine you can prove by simply walking down the street or picking up a newspaper or checking the Internet. Sin is all over the place, but not in the case of Mary. Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin. And if you're perfectly full of the grace of God, remember, it's a past perfect term, then there's no room for sin. There's no room for sin. It's all grace. And so this, this kind of goes back to the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, the, the first gospel. Quite literally, it's referred to by scholars as the proto-evangelium. And speaking of the original sin, speaking of Adam and Eve just plunging uh, humanity into uh, the state, as soon as this happened, the first gospel appeared right after Adam and Eve fell into Satan's trap. What does God say to the Satan, to the serpent? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, of course, what's, who exactly is being referred to here? Because what does the word enmity mean when God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman? Enmity means total opposition. So really, he can't actually be speaking about Eve here because Eve wasn't in total opposition to Satan. They were in some way, they had kind of teamed up in some way. She was kind of under the sway of Satan because of her sin. So this has to be talking about another woman. It has to point forward to Mary. And the church fathers called Mary the new Eve. And that, that's one of the reasons why Jesus is called. And Paul talks about this in Romans. We just mentioned this the other day on the Faith Explained show. Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam. And that's also why in John's gospel, Mary is never referred to by her name. At the wedding feast in Cana, it simply calls her the mother of Jesus in John chapter 2. And Jesus actually refers to Mary as woman. Woman, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And on the cross, he says, woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. We're talking to, of course, John the Apostle, who most people think is the source behind the Gospel of John, the author of John, if you will. Why is he calling her woman? It, 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 he's not being disrespectful. This is because of her position as the new Eve. And that's what Eve, of course, meant woman. And so she is such a powerful help to us in our own battle against the enemy. 
And, and in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, there was this great scene. And, and to me, it really spoke to this total enmity. That's the passage of scripture that popped up in my mind. When I saw this scene, Mary is following Jesus on the way of the cross. And on the other side of the street, there's the devil, there's Satan. And he's walking in the total opposite direction. He's walking away from Christ. And he sees Mary across the street. And he kind of tries to intimidate her. He's trying to stare her down. She knows he's there, but she keeps focused. She keeps her eyes on her son. That's the total enmity. That, that to me, spoke of that, that scriptural reality. And so this is what we have to understand on this uh, incredible feast day of the Immaculate Conception. And so we, we need to pray that prayer. Oh, Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to you. All right. If you have questions, comments about this, why not call in right now? It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. And we will be right back after this quick break. The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program on this December the 8th. It's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. You know, it's also interesting that when it comes to one of the great uh, Marian revelations of the 19th century, of course, at Lourdes in France, the young Bernadette Subaru which has nothing to do with Subaru vehicles, of course. Um, she, when she encountered the lady uh, who she discovered was the Blessed Virgin Mary, she asked her name, and Mary replied, I am the Immaculate Conception. Of course, in French, she said these words. And that's what really got her parish priest to take her seriously, because the doctrine had been promulgated in 1854. That's when the dogma was pronounced, as we talked about before the break by Pope Pius IX, and only four years later, remember, there was no internet back then. Things moved pretty slowly at a snail's pace in terms of news getting from Rome out to the villages all across Europe. So this young girl, pretty much uncatechized, the parish priest was shocked when she said those words. Who is the lady? What, What is her name? Well, she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. What? He nearly fell off his chair. So, and we we know, of course, the great miracles that have been wrought uh, at Lourdes. But this uh, doctrine does give rise to a lot of questions, especially among our non-Catholic friends and family members, coworkers, people that we meet. And, and one of the big questions that people ask is to say, okay, well, if Mary was preserved from all stain of original sin, and, and the church holds she didn't commit any actual sins in her life either, if she's sinless, doesn't that make her some sort of a divine being? And the answer is, of course, no. Uh, it's become almost a it, it's it, it's it's a trope that has become almost comically overdone. This accusation that Catholics worship Mary, we don't. We know the first commandment. We only worship the one true and living God, but we honor Mary. That's a lot different. We give her what's called extreme honor. There's a Latin term for it, hyperdulia, uh, because she's the greatest creature of all greater than any angel or any other saint. And so when people say this, this you know, doesn't this make her 
in some ways equal to God being being sinless? No, not not the case at all. And one of the things that we talked about um, when dealing with St. Paul's letter to the Romans on, on the Faith Explained show, when we were talking about original sin, one of the things I said is that when we come into the world before we are baptized, this whole thing with original sin, it's 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 not something that, that we've done, but we are missing something when we come into the world. And it's worse than coming into the world missing a limb, missing an arm, missing a hand, missing a leg. We are missing the very grace of God, the very life of God. So we have natural life, but we don't have supernatural life. And that's given back to us at baptism. Our original sin is washed away. We're infused with the life of God. So we're all created in the image of God. It means we have a rational soul. But we're missing the likeness part, which Adam and Eve had at the beginning. They lost it. And that is the life of God uh, infused within them. And so this is what we get back in baptism. And so whenever we sin, we really fall short of what being truly and fully human is really all about. And uh, my friend Jimmy Aiken once wrote an article uh, for Catholic Answers that sort of rebutting some of the um, questions that people have and doubts that people have about the Immaculate Conception. And that's what he said. He said that, look, if, if we're made in the image and likeness of God, we are called to live and to love as God lives and loves. And, that, and that's, this is why Vatican II says that Christ fully reveals man to himself. By the way, people, a lot of people think Pope John Paul II actually wrote those words. He kind of authored that, that famous line from Vatican II, that Christ fully reveals the human person uh, to himself, to herself. He shows what it means to be perfectly human. And in the beginning, no one was equal to God, yet sin was not there. When Adam and Eve did sin, they acted in a manner, and this is how Jimmy Aiken puts it, that was beneath their dignity because they were made in the image and likeness of God. And that sin took away from who they were supposed to be. Um, and so it's, it's falling short. It's missing the mark. And that's what St. Paul says in Romans. That's the very definition of sin. It's one of the definitions of sin anyways. It's missing the mark. And this is not what we're supposed to be. And so Mary Mary is the, as one writer said, the solitary boast of our race. She is a, a picture of what we're all called to be. And uh, to, to, to be that totally responsive um, person in, in love with the Trinity. I, I just, I think it's incredible. So she gives the most glory to God because she is that perfect masterpiece. Now, and again, here, here's another here's another common question that people um, that people do raise. They say, "How could Mary be sinless if even her even she herself said in the Magnificat in Luke's Gospel, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior.' That's not a problem for us because." Mary is correct in saying that, that yes, her, God is her Savior, and all of us need a Savior, but the way that Mary was saved, the, the way that Mary was uh, redeemed was totally different from the way God works with us. She, she, wasn't, she didn't actually need redemption in a certain sense. She was saved ahead of time. And one of the church fathers, uh, St. Irenaeus, he, he put it this way, there's a couple ways to, to save somebody from a muddy pit. You can either pull them out of the mud and hose them off once they've fallen in, but a more perfect way to save them is to prevent them from falling in in the first place. And that's exactly what God did with Mary. He prevented sin from ever touching her. 
it was God who did it. In, in, in either case, it's always God who does it, God who does the saving. But the way in which he preemptively saved Mary, I guess you could say, um, from the very moment of her conception. So how about that? So this is uh, totally in keeping with Catholic doctrine. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this in paragraph 492, that this gift was given to Mary, and she was, quote, redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her son. End of quote. That's paragraph 492. And then, of course, people want to bring up St. Paul as well, and Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is from his letter to the Romans. This is a general statement. He doesn't mean every single individual person who's ever lived. There are other exceptions as well. A child below the age of reason hasn't committed actual sin. Now, they may have original sin, and if they're baptized, that's washed away. However, having said that, they haven't committed any actual sins until they reach the age of reason. And the same would be true uh, for people who have uh, mental and physical challenges, for example, um, who simply can't, uh, they're, they're not freely choosing to, uh, to sin, and uh, that's, so that's, that's not a problem at all. And um, this isn't an invented doctrine as well. A lot of people want to say that, okay, what do people believe prior to 1854? Or here's another example. In 1950, uh, the church promulgated the dogma of the Assumption of Mary. And I've had a lot of non-Catholics say to me, well, the church is just simply inventing these things willy-nilly. And what, what gives the church the right to do this? Well, they're not, it doesn't mean that this thing didn't exist beforehand. The church is simply defining what was always the case. The church can do this uh, as mother and teacher, define faith and morals more specifically. And this idea that nobody ever believed this until uh, the Pope promulgated these doctrines, uh, it's not the case. And usually this only happens when there's um, a controversy or some sort of a, an issue that needs to be resolved. A great example of this is the, and we talked about this a couple days ago on the program with St. Nicholas, and then of course yesterday we talked about St. Ambrose, uh, the great heretic Arius, who basically said that Jesus wasn't God. That was essentially the nuts and bolts of his heresy. That necessitated the Council of Nicaea being called the great formulation of the Nicene Creed, defending the divinity of Christ. Was Christ always God from all eternity? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, the church had to make that pronouncement. I, I call these, these doctrines, these dogmas of faith and morals, I call them calluses on the mystical body of Christ. Because uh, in our physical bodies, we have calluses, maybe on our hands or our heels, because that's the part of, part of our body that strikes against the outside world. And so it has to build up a, a very hard edge, a defense, so that uh, poisons from without don't get within and the same is true with these doctrines of the church that are very clearly and tightly defined to separate truth from error. And usually those, those definitions only happen when there's a need, when there's a heresy, a false teaching that's challenging the true doctrine. In the case of, of the Immaculate Conception, uh, the Pope, uh, Pope Pius IX didn't define it because there was any particular challenge against it at the time. It was because, he well, first of all, he was very devoted to Our Lady, as we all should be, and he was kind of hoping that by officially defining this, this dogma, which was always true, would inspire others to, to increase their Marian devotion. And so, um, 
was he successful? I think he was in in many ways, and uh, we we have to work and do our part to to make sure this doctrine is better known as well. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Hi, Joe. How are you doing, Kale? It's good to talk to you again. I enjoy your show. There's one, I'm a Catholic, like I said before. Mm-hmm. I was talking to you last week, and I struggled with these two passages. Because everybody says Mary never had children. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can explain it to me. Uh, chapter 12, Matthew 41, it says that uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, mother and brothers. And then the other one, cha- uh, chapter 13, 53, where it names them. Yeah. It yeah, names, that's right. It names uh, the different name. So I'm wondering, you know, did she have children or didn't she? The, the Catholic Church says no, the Protestants say I mean, the Catholic Church says yes, no, and the Protestants say yes. Mm-hmm. I struggle with that. Yeah, that, that, Joe, thank you for bringing that up. That's always uh, something that gets talked about when we talk about another Marian doctrine, which is, of course, that Mary is ever virgin. And Scripture does say, the New Testament does talk about the quote-unquote brothers and even sisters of Jesus that are mentioned in the Gospels. So, who are these people? <laughs> and, and who is their mother? Well, they are not children of Mary. And there, there are a few different ways that um, people can kind of def- figure that out. One, th- one thing I'll say is this. I remember, when Joe, when I was doing my grad studies, I came across a really interesting book called Mary in the New Testament. And it was written by scholars. Some of them were Catholic. Some of them were Protestant. Some of them came from other backgrounds. And they looked at the biblical text concerning Mary. And there's also another kind of a companion book called Peter in the New Testament, also really interesting. And so it looked at all these passages about who are these, quote-unquote, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Well, one thing that's true, and all the scholars admitted this, no matter what their background was. Now, maybe in their, in their personal faith, if they were Protestants, they did believe that Mary had other children. Uh, if they're Catholic, of course, they would say that's not the case. Uh, she only has one child, and that's Jesus. So, does the New Testament actually say that Mary had other children? It doesn't say that. It, it ne- never says that these uh, individuals are children of Mary. It's not the case. So, who are they then? Well, there's a couple, couple different explanations uh, for this, Joe. In... Uh, in some traditions, this would include the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, as you probably know. Uh, there are Eastern Catholics, there are Coptic Catholics, there are Byzantine Catholics, Ukrainian Catholics. And in the Eastern rites of the Church, this has always been believed, and also in the Eastern Orthodox churches as well. So don't, don't forget, it's not just the Catholics that say that Mary is ever virgin. Orthodox Christians also believe that. It's really, really important to know that. It's not just Catholics who believe the perpetual virginity. Um, so who are these, these children? Well, in the, in the East, they say, Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church, also Eastern Orthodox Churches, they say that they, they, they could be children of Joseph from his previous marriage. There, there is a tradition in the East that Joseph was an elderly widower when he married Mary, okay, when he took her under his wing, uh, protect her, and that his wife had died, but they had children. So they would be stepbrothers and stepsisters of Jesus, if that makes any sense. That's, that's how it was always kind of looked at in the East, and that's why in some icons of the Holy Family or of St. Joseph or paintings uh, that were very prominent in art in the East, Joseph is depicted as an older man. 
Uh, he's got white hair, a long beard. That is exactly why, because they want to portray the fact that he was much older and it had a family and he simply uh, took her under his wing to, to, to be her protector. You couldn't be a single woman operating in the, in the ancient world in the first century. It just was not done. So she needs a guardian. And so that, that's, that's one way to explain it. Uh, in the Western part of the church, the tradition has always been that St. Joseph was more Mary's age, if you will. And of course, she was a very young girl when this happened. She was maybe 14 years old, 15, 16, maybe. And that they were planning on getting married in the usual way, having a family, but then God kind of threw a monkey wrench into their plans, and, and she became the mother of the Messiah. But was that the case? It's kind of interesting that in Luke's gospel, we talked about Luke earlier, when Gabriel you know, speaks to her at the Annunciation and says, hey, you're going to bear the Messiah. This is, you know, nobody thought the Messiah was going to be divine in the first century Jewish world. Everybody kind of thought he'd be more of a, a political figure, perhaps a military figure who would kick the Romans out of the Holy Land. And every Jewish woman would have loved to have been the mother of the Messiah. But it's interesting that when Gabriel says this. He said nothing at this point. He has said nothing at this point about a miraculous conception. But what does Mary say back to him? How can this be? How can I be the mother of the Messiah since I am a virgin? Now, that's a very strange question for an engaged woman to ask because ostensibly she knew something about where babies came from. She's engaged to be married. Very strange question unless, unless she had already made a vow of virginity. And that's what a lot of scholars think, that she had made this vow of virginity. It was rare but not unheard of uh, in the Israelite world of the first century. This idea that she'd consecrated herself wholly to God and that Joseph simply becomes her guardian and protector. And uh, there was never any any intent of, of them having children of their own. So that's, that's one way to explain it. Um, but there's nothing in the New Testament that says that these are actually children of Mary. What people believe about that is heavily influenced by the, the church tradition that they come from. If they grow up in the Protestant world, they tend to believe that they're children of Mary. If they grow up Catholic, they don't think that. Does, does that help to clear it up a little bit, Joe? You know, you, I, I just thought of something now. You made me think of something. Years ago, I went to the Bible Society in New York City, and a lady gave me a dish, uh, some writings of another person. And it did mention that Joseph was an older man, and that was his children. And I don't yeah. know if it was the Gospel of Thomas. Are you familiar with that? Uh, it probably wasn't in the Gospel of Thomas, but it might have been in the Proto-Evangelium of James. That might be what you're thinking about. This is a, another, it's not in the Bible, but it was an early church document uh, that talks a lot about Mary. And in fact, uh, this is where we get the whole concept that Jesus was born in a cave. Uh, in Bethlehem, it's not that this, that's not actually in the New Testament. It comes from the Proto Evangelium of James. It's a second century document, so it's not scripture, but it might contain some historical stuff. It might, um, it might not too. <laughs> it might be a mix of both, but um, I believe it's also in the Proto Evangelium of James. Yes, it is in the Proto Evangelium of James, in which this idea of the presentation of Mary in, in the temple that we just had this feast day. Uh, just a few days ago, this idea that Mary's parents essentially dropped her off at the temple when she was a young girl, and she kind of consecrated herself to God there, and, and this is when when it all kind of happened. So that would certainly dovetail with the account that she was never planning on having a traditional marriage in that sense. So 
Uh, that's probably the one you're talking about. It's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Exactly. That's the one. You, you brought it back to my mind. I, I had the papers. The lady gave it to me. And that's where I, then I, I sort of believe that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, could, that could well be the case. Uh, absolutely. Hey, Joe, it's great to hear from you, man. I hope you have a very blessed, holy Advent and, and a Merry Christmas. You call back any time now, okay? Uh, okay, thanks. Thanks, Gail. Okay, Good. you got it, sir. Appreciate you. That's Joe in New Jersey. All right, let's go now to Sean in Santa Clarita, California, in SoCal. Hi, Sean. Hi there. How you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Good to hear from you. Glad to hear it. I'm calling because uh, something that is not that well known uh, in the church history of Eusebius, he quotes the earlier history, the earlier historian, Hegesippus, mm-hmm. who lived around the turn of the century, about 125. He, inter- he interviewed the grandsons of Jude the Apostle, who had been uh, brought before Domitian as mm. uh, descendants of David. And they explained that um, Alpheus, Cleophas, the, uh, uh, was the brother of Joseph, and yep. that Jude and James were their uh, children. We read it in John 19 of uh, Mary and her sister Mary of Cleophas. Yeah. Well, it would be probably not too certain that there be two Marys in one family. This is her, this is her sister-in-law. That's, uh, that's who, a great Matthew point. Calls the other Matthew, Matthew calls the other Mary. Yeah, that, that that's a great point. And that, that's certainly one of the views that uh, took hold in, in the Western part of the Church, in the Roman Rite, of the church that they are in fact that these so-called brothers of Jesus are in fact his cousins. Now we know that of course in in the Bible the word brother is used in in a lot of different ways. Just like I might you know, see producer Jim and say, "Hey brother, how you doing?" Uh, in the Bible, it can mean uh, not only just a blood brother, but it could also mean a half brother. It could mean a relative. It could be uh, an associate. It could be. Here's an example. Even fellow Christians, fellow believers in Acts 21, verse 7 are called brothers. And even the Jewish, St. Paul talks to uh, some of the leaders of the Jewish faith. He calls them brothers as well. Back in Genesis, in the book of Genesis chapter 14, remember Abraham and Lot? Lot um, is called the brother of Abraham, but he wasn't his brother. He was his nephew. So there's a lot of different family relations that could be covered by this word and so some people think that it actually means cousins because it can refer to extended uh, familiar relationships, if you will. And yeah, this idea of John chapter 19, verse 25, it talks about uh, the other Mary as the wife of Clopas. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. May have been the brother of St. Joseph. That, that is a, a thought that is in some early church writers for sure. So that, there are some, some ways to kind of reconcile this without having to, to say that their children are married, which they most certainly are not, because the the Catholic Church cannot err in matters of faith and morals when it makes these official uh, pronouncements, these these dogmas uh, by the magisterium. So, a uh, great question. I really really appreciate that, Sean. And we got to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, but we will be right back after these messages. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. 
This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Welcome back to the program. Of course, it is Friday. It's also a great solemnity in the Catholic Church. It's the feast solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. It's one of the four Marian dogmas that you have to believe to hold the Catholic faith, so it's a great day to celebrate. And if you haven't gotten a Mass yet, if you live in the United States, you know it's a holy day of obligation. So, hey, if you can find the local Mass tonight, drop what you're doing. This is the one time you're allowed to turn off relevant radio. And uh, the, rest of the, time, the rest of the day, of course, you got to keep it, keep it cranking 24-7-365. Well, Speaking of the last seven days, it's been an incredible week here on The Kale Clark Show, and producer Jim Shaper's got you covered if you missed anything. Here's a snippet called The Week That Was. Check it out. Here's the thing. If you're already Catholic, you already have the most stupendous miracle that you could ever possibly imagine, and that's, of course, the Eucharist. The fact that Jesus Christ is present, of course, sacramentally, body, blood, soul, and divinity in every Mass, in every Eucharist, in every Catholic church all around the world. That's amazing. That, and we, we sometimes take that one for granted. This may be a silly example, but I remember remember one time after Mass, the parish priest said, hey man, I've got these holy cards I want to give away. Uh, does anybody want them? And people were literally running up the aisles and tripping over themselves to get these free holy cards. And are we that excited about the Eucharist? I, I hope we are. Whenever you decide to set up your, your tree and you put that star atop that tree, you can rejoice along with the Magi that Christmas is a reality and the star was a reality as well. And it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. Let's go to Paul in Youngstown, Ohio. Hi, Kale. I just wondered, uh, this year would you be topping your tree with a star or an angel? So the, the star on the top of our tree, it's a poinsettia in the form of a star. So it's a star, but it's got a poinsettia in it. It looks kind of cool. It's red when it gets lit up. It's kind of cool. The real St. Nicholas is almost as jarring to people because there are a lot of legends surrounding him. So what do we need to know about St. Nicholas? One of the most famous stories about St. Nicholas is that he allegedly knocked out Arius, who, by the way, would have richly deserved such a thing. I don't advocate physical violence, except for when it comes to Arius, because he did deserve it, because he, of course, was the arch heretic at the Council of Nicaea, and it is said that St. Nicholas of Bari, who had been in prison and had been tortured for the Orthodox Catholic Christian faith, he was having none of this guy, and he allegedly, I don't know whether it was a Superman punch, I don't know if that's what uh, he did to Arius or not, but St. Nicholas allegedly did that. Let's go to Douglas in Albuquerque. I'm what you would call a non-believer, okay? I'm not a Catholic, but I know what the Bible says. I've read it. I know that faith without works is dead. I quit working for money, and I now volunteer full-time to help others. My desire in life has always been that, and I'm telling you, the rewards are unbelievable. Douglas, first of all, I commend you. These good things that you're doing to, to serve your neighbor are crucial, and you're right. Faith without works is dead. The other side of the coin is that works without faith is also dead. And just good deeds alone. That's not going to cut it either because the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see, there are lots of people who do good deeds out there and they're great. And God takes those into account for sure. But without faith, it simply becomes mere activism. And so you need both. You need faith as well. Think about that. Just look into that. Call back anytime. It's great to have you call in, Douglas. I'm really glad you called. I'll pray for you and uh, God bless you. 
All right, a little snippet. The week that was on the Kale Clark Show. My thanks to producer Jim Shaper and also Miranda Sinceros, who had tip to her for the assist on putting together those clips. If you missed any of that stuff, if you want the full programs, go to the free number one Catholic app, the relevant radio app, and all of our programs are there, and you can share them with a friend so easily. I really recommend that you do that. Great updates are coming to the app. I've seen some of the previews and got some really good stuff coming up for you in the next little while. So go download the app. All right. Well, of course, uh, the weekend is here. And that means, of course, for me, I know what I'm going to be doing on Sunday. I'm going to be going to Mass. I'm going to be checking out some NFL football. And last night's game, Thursday Night Football, well, I'll tell you, it was a bit of a surprising result. The 2-10 and 10 New England Patriots were able to get one over on the Steelers. They're now 3-10, and 10, of course. And uh, ooh, the Steelers might not make it into the playoffs. That was actually kind of good news for my Buffalo Bills. But I don't think anybody, well, I think people probably would question this. But in my mind, the clear best team in the league right now is the San Francisco 49ers. Man, did they ever lay a beat down last weekend on the Philadelphia Eagles. Kind of sweet revenge for 49ers quarterback, especially Brock Purdy, who was knocked out of the NFC Championship game against the Eagles last year in the playoffs. Uh, Elbow injury, UCL injury, uh, devastating. And uh, 49ers, of course, uh, had to turn their back up. They got walloped. I think if Purdy had stayed in that game, I think the 49ers went to the Super Bowl. And hard to argue with that after the uh, the crushing uh, defeat that they gave the Eagles last week. And you know what? It's 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 amazing because Brock Purdy he's he's not a Catholic. We got to pray that he discovers the Catholic Christian faith, but he is a believer in Jesus Christ. And here's some highlights, by the way. Here's a little highlight: great touchdown pass that he threw to Debo Samuel in the game against Philly last weekend. Check it out. Pressure, throws over the middle, caught by Samuel, breaks a tackle, still on his feet, and speed now! Samuel racing to the end zone, and he dives, and he's in! Debo Samuel doing what he does best, yards after the catch, running through contact, Nicholas Morrow can't bring him down, and then it just becomes a foot race, and... These are the plays we've seen Debo Samuel make in this 49 Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson on the call for Fox. Uh, what, a, what a victory that was for the 49ers. They beat the Eagles 42-19 to in Philly last Sunday. Hung six touchdowns on the Eagles. And in fact, they scored more points against them than Philly had allowed in a game all year. They scored 28 just in the second half alone. So the Niners are now 9-3. and three. They're just a game behind the 10-2 and two Eagles in the race for the NFC's number one seed in the playoffs. But at what point are people going to start giving Brock Purdy some credit? He's almost never mentioned when it comes to potential MVPs this season. Well, in that game on Sunday, he completed 19 of 27 passes for 314 yards, four touchdowns, no picks, a 148.8 passer rating. He's leading in a lot of categories. In fact, pass rating, he's number one in the league. Completion percentage, number one in the league. Uh, TDs per attempts, per, per uh, pass attempts thrown, he's number one. Yards per attempts, number one. Yards and completions, number one. I mean, when is he going to be mentioned among the elites? And the funny thing about him, as you might know, he was Mr. Irrelevant, quote-unquote, when he was drafted a couple years ago. Literally the last pick in the draft, and... and 
The science of picking quarterbacks, it's obviously not an exact one for sure. Tom Brady was picked 199th. Well, of course, Purdy went even later than that. Uh, but he is just an, an amazing player, an absolutely amazing player. Here's an interview that he gave recently about his faith as well, and I really liked this. This is how he kind of relates to his teammates when it comes to his Christian faith, which inspires him, of course. Sure, there's you know questions brought up in terms of like you know how do you do it, and um, for for myself it was honestly you want the truth because this is the truth. It's it's man like this is who God has called me to be, and I've believed that from day one. I believe that Jesus Christ did come down and died for my sins, and and rose again, and and He's living, you know, He's living and sitting beside God on the throne, and so I believe that it's not just some story fairy tale thing. It's it's real, and it it, is, it allows me to you know, stay level-headed and, and real with life, and I know what my purpose is. And so that all has allowed me to play my game. It has allowed me to play football at this level. You know, when guys ask me or they're interested in, you know, what helps you do what you do, then, yeah, I share. Um, but, you know, I just, the biggest thing for me is just loving all my teammates, you know, being where they're at, relating with them, um, being a relatable teammate. Um, and then, you know, if they ask about what, what I believe in, then I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for sharing, so... I really like the way that Brock Purdy handles this stuff with his teammates. He's not trying to shove it down anybody's throat, but when when guys come to him and they ask him about it, he's more than willing to talk about it and share. And I think just his example, obviously, uh, his lived-out faith is making a big impression on his teammates. And uh, he, he's talked about this a lot in the past, too. He was quoted um, as saying, The minute you have fame and you're trying to chase status and money and all this stuff, you'll lose your life rather than denying yourself, picking up your cross, keeping your eyes on Jesus and his promises. Through that, that's life, and that's a life worth living. Maybe kind of channeling, of course, uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, life is worth living. And, uh, well, let's pray that Brock Purdy discovers the Catholic Church. I don't know if he's looked into it, but uh, he certainly has a robust faith in Jesus Christ. It's nice to see Guys like him who are on the stage and have a lot of temptations in life, let's face it, uh, give credit to the Lord for their for so many great gifts and to be able to to reach their co-workers and so many others with the platform that he has. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Speaking of sports, by the way, um, there was a great rumor today. Forget about the Santa sleigh trackers that you see on radar on Christmas Eve. <laughs> People were really busy on Twitter today tracking a plane, a private jet that took off from Anaheim, California, and was on its way to the city where I live, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, a plane that was said to contain none other than the modern-day Babe Ruth, Shohei Otani. Of course, if you're a sports fan, you know the internet was ablaze. X was certainly ablaze all day long with rumors that Otani, who's a free agent, was just getting ready to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. And man, I sure hope that this is true. But late breaking news, friends, late breaking news. Uh, I have just learned uh, via the Twitter account of Ben Nicholson Smith, uh, who covers the Blue Jays for Sportsnet, uh, that the plane that actually landed in Toronto uh, did not contain did not contain Shohei Otani. In fact, uh, it was somebody else. It turned out to be businessman Robert Herjavec from Shark Tank. Uh, you might, have, might remember that guy. Uh, so everyone was super disappointed. Uh, he probably saw a lot of people uh, ready to greet him when he got off the plane, but they were not there to greet him. They were there to greet Shohei Otani. But it's, he still might sign with the Blue Jays. It doesn't mean that he's not coming here. 
Uh, but all these rumors were flying all over the place. Probably my favorite one. And uh, I guess I wouldn't cut it as a real journalist because I, uh, I reposted this in the hopes that it was true. An opera singer by the name of Clarence Frazier had reported that Yusei Kachuki, uh, Kikuchi, excuse me, uh, player for the Blue Jays, also from Japan, like a Shohei, had reserved a, a very upscale sushi restaurant near the Sky Dome, which is now called the Rogers Center. Reservation made for 50 people. Make of it what you will. Now, that tweet has garnered, uh, to this point, 2.6 million views. <laughs> well, uh, Shohei may or may not be in town, but uh, I sure hope that he does sign with the Blue Jays. That would be pretty awesome and make this day even better. And how could it get much better? Because this is a great Marian feast day. It's been a great week on the Kale Clark Show. Thanks for joining me today. Jim Schaefer produced. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. Have a great weekend, everybody. God bless. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.